This podcast is brought to you thanks to the generous support of Whistler Blackcomb, leaders in delivering adventure. And people weren't doing very well. Often they would say, oh, you know, this is just pretend and I do much better when things are real. Okay, sure. But then they get to the last day of the course and it's the exam. And they don't do very well in the exam and they go, well, I don't do very well in the exams because it's too stressful. Well, you got to pick one. (laughs) You can't just not do well because it's not stressful enough or do well because it's too stressful. Welcome to Delivering Adventure. This is the podcast that explores what it really takes to share adventure like a pro with your friends, your family, and as a profession. My name is Chris Capio, and I'm coming to you from Whistler, British Columbia. And I'm Jordy Shepard, recording from Canmore, Alberta. After a lifetime of working extensively in different parts of the adventure guiding industry, Chris and I have teamed up to launch this podcast. In each episode, you will hear top adventure guides, managers, marketers, and athletes share their best stories, advice, and trade secrets. The goal of this podcast is to share how you can take yourself and others farther from the mountains to the office and beyond. In this episode, we continue our discussion with AJ Mao on how we can increase our performance when we are faced with a crisis. We've spent a lot of time on this podcast discussing strategies and processes that we can follow that help us to avoid putting ourselves or others in a crisis. Unfortunately, things don't always go as planned. For this reason, being able to manage ourselves and others effectively when a crisis happens is an essential skill to have when it comes to delivering adventure. If you missed the first episode, AJ shared his definition of a crisis and walked us through a number of examples from his long career of what exactly happens to us when a crisis happens. In this follow-up episode, we drill down into ways that we can increase our chances of performing well when things go completely sideways on us and the people that we are with. AJ is an avalanche professional and member of the Canadian Ski Guide Association. He's also worked as a professional ski patroller for the past 20 years. He is active in many spheres of the avalanche industry, including forecasting for industrial operations, search and rescue, and ski resorts, as well as instructing and guiding. AJ runs a North Shore Snowpack YouTube channel, providing weekly snowpack information to backcountry users, and is a brand ambassador for Nanotraino, manufacturer of high-quality, packable emergency evacuation toboggans. When not working, he is busy delivering adventure to his two boys, taking them on family adventures. Now, Jordy, you've spent a lot of time in your career managing emergencies and rescue situations. You have also found yourself guiding others in high-consequence situations working as a climbing and ski guide. Have you got a story that you can share with us where you were able to manage a crisis effectively? Maybe a story involving a pretend grizzly bear, perhaps? Well, yeah, Chris, uh, that was sort of a self-inflicted incident there. I was working a number of years ago for Parks Canada as a human-wildlife conflict specialist in the Lake Louise area, and we were doing some training down at a gun range, uh, you know, in case we had to deal with wildlife that was not happy with us and didn't like us being uh, managing them the way that we were wanting to manage them. And so we had concocted this sled that uh, ran from, that had a bear target on it, uh, that was went behind me to a tied onto a pickup truck. And so the idea was somebody drove away from me and I'm facing away from the pickup truck that's leaving and the sled starts coming towards you and towards me and uh, and you take some shots and then, yeah, and put the charging grizzly bear down. And so uh, I, I got to do the inaugural run on it and what we determined was that uh, the person driving the truck was driving way too fast and the ground was quite uneven. And this grizzly bear sled started rocking and tumbling and cartwheeling. And it was it was like a football rolling through a, a football field. Like you just didn't know which direction it was going to go. So I basically got some shots off and then I got out of the way 
dove into the dirt and this thing careened past me and that's how we learn. Uh, we adapted and started using some different techniques to train for charging grizzly bears because that one was uh, not WorkSafe compliant. <laughs> that is a great story, Jordy. Now, in the version of this story that I heard, you did very well to avoid shooting any of your colleagues as you were rolling out of the way while cradling a loaded shotgun. Seems to me that counts as managing well in the face of what could have been classified as a crisis in the making. So let's bring in AJ to hear how we can improve our performance in a crisis so that we can react as well as you did there, Jordy. Welcome back to the show, AJ. I wanted to pick up where we left off in the last episode. What kind of stress does a crisis put on us mentally and how does it affect our ability to perform? Yeah, I think we we touched on it a little bit when we're talking about that that surge of adrenaline in our system. Uh, adrenaline is is really designed to um, to force you to do very very simple thing. For the most part, run away. Right? Um, we're not very well designed, or or we're not at, at, on our baseline, anyways, to get into a very stressful situation. And to start to analyze it, uh, because that's not a very natural thing. Like what we're doing outside when we're playing in the mountains and the rivers and whatnot, is is not necessarily a very natural thing. Like the the way you know, in the period of time where our brain and body were designed, um, we had to go out and find some food, and if there was something that could eat us, we had to run away from it. Uh, and our our body is designed very well to do that. But now to get into the intricacies of, of group management and, and search and rescue and all of this, um, when we're under a lot of stress, that far exceeds our mental load. So I think that the way to circumvent that is through training. And, you know, one of the things that I did for many years is, is first aid training. And, and in first aid, and I'm, I'm certain that most of your listeners have some kind of first aid background, uh, we have this patient assessment system, which often students hate learning because it feels like a little obstacle course. And often they see it as, okay, well, you know, if I jump all through these hoops, then the instructor is going to be happy and I'm going to have my ticket and I can work as a guide. Uh, but really that's not at all the intent. The intent is to give you a handrail, give you a method to actually force you to think of the right things at the time you need to think about them. And if you don't have that system, if you don't train in that system, you're very unlikely to do very well. Uh, you're going to be disorganized. You're going to focus on the wrong things. Um, so, you know, I think that the answer to the mental stress that we're going to be under is understanding that this mental stress is foreseeable. And if we don't train, if we don't have a system for when it's going to happen, we're probably going to do it poorly. And not only that, but going back to my first example of, of that unfortunate uh, pedestrian who was struck by a car, I knew all of these things. I was able to run through the patient assessment model from top to bottom, bottom to top, eyes closed, whatnot. But <clears throat> I was still not able to do it. So you need then to have some exposure. You need to be able to be able to bring your stress level down and then just hold on to that handrail like your life depends on it and then go through it systematically. Uh, I don't think anyone can expect to do this right off the couch like, as an intuitive no, I, I totally agree with you there, AJ. It's uh, training is super important, and and having people recognize that the training they're doing is not going to prepare them for every eventuality, right? Because you can't, you know, can't, you can do a number of scenarios in any training course for a particular topic, but you're never going to be, you know, exactly practicing what you're going to be doing out there in the field. However, it does give you systems, and it allows you. Uh, you know, if, if you need it, that luxury of a bit of reflection to say, okay, this is, 
this is different than what I've been trained for. This is different than what my experiences were and how is it different? And now do I have tools in my toolbox to actually deal with that? And that process of, of delving into that will, will somewhat detach you a little bit from the emotions of it at the time. Those emotions will come back for sure. Um, but what we're, what we're trying to do as professionals um, and for, to help other people um, and to help ourselves in a situation is become a little bit detached emotionally. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but of course, then there's that whole piece of, about bringing that back to the forefront very close to after the incident. And I think you're absolutely right. And, and it goes back to what I was saying a little bit earlier, like like who owns the crisis here? And, and when I'm moving into this, what what is my element at risk? Um, and that can actually be quite helpful to try to, you really have to avoid having that balance, like that adrenaline level bringing you to that tipping point. Um, and so, you know, having those systems and training in those systems, what happens here is that you, you know, you were, to go back to our original definition, you were in a critical period, right? You know, we're, we're managing our risk. There was the potential here and something went sideways. Somebody got hurt or, you know, something of that nature. Now you could be in a crisis at that point, but if you train well, and if this was something that was somewhat foreseeable and that you're prepared for it, you're not in a crisis. You're just in a different critical period where, okay, we're not talking about skiing right now. We're thinking about avalanche rescue or first aid or whatnot, but you're still in control. You know that you can actually manage this. You have the skills to do it. And unless something goes sideways again during that period, then you get into another crisis. But ultimately what we want is to try to avoid ever being in that situation where we're completely unprepared and only reactive. Do you have an example of a situation where someone was able to work through a crisis effectively? Um, I, I thought of that um, quite a bit. And, and I have some, um, some interesting examples. Um, you know, we talked about this woman in the, during the canoe trip who was most definitely did not handle it uh, uh, effectively. She did not pull through. Uh, and then we also have to realize that a crisis in some cases, if, if we want to step a little bit outside of the typical backcountry injury, um, a crisis can be much broader. And, and there are some crises that you're just not going to get out of. Um, you know, and it's just going to drag you down over a certain period of time. And how are you going to manage this? And and one of the um, most powerful image that came to mind is um, the the famous cl- climber uh, Jeff Lowe, who um, unfortunately had a, a, a debilitating disease um, that took his life. And and there is a there is a powerful documentary that was made about that called Metanoia, and one of the very strong moments of the movie is when he says, and you can see he's in a wheelchair on oxygen and all of that. And he, he says, during my whole life, I put my life at risk and I put myself through incredible suffering because I chose to. Like my Alpine career was just that, like incredible amount of suffering and huge amounts of risk that could take my life. The only thing that's different now is that I didn't choose this one. And and so I think that the mindset is so important. Uh, If you get to this point where you say, okay, I own this, it's nobody else's fault, or even if it is somebody else's fault, I'm still the one dealing with the consequences. And... And now I'm going to pull through this. Um, even if you're not going to pull through it, even if it means that, you know, that that disease is is, is terminal. Uh, but, you know, what are you going to do with, with the little bit of time you have left? Um, another aspect, which is the, not related to the outdoor world, um, 
is my my personal experience or, or my mother's personal experience where she had two kids and she was pregnant with me and then my father went scuba diving and died um, and so one of the things that I thought was incredible about my mother is her strength and her like her ability just like I was saying earlier not to blame the ocean for killing my father or whatnot just to say you know what I have, I'm pregnant and I have two kids. I have to do this and I can't fail. And then she made a plan and she, she made, um, you know, she took very deliberate action to pull through this. Um, and so, you know, looking at survival stories, that's something that you'll see very commonly, like as traits is, is first off uh, an attitude that is like, Okay, well, we got a problem. Let's fix it. Um, and then beyond that, like taking ownership and making a plan. But again, depending on the type of crisis you're in, um, we're talking about, um, you know, training for first aid or, or avalanche rescue earlier. If, if it's a very acute crisis with a very set time frame, then you have to train ahead of time and it has to become like automatic that you okay let's do this we know how to do this it's just going through the motion uh if it's a longer event um then i think that attitude making a plan and and pushing through you know no matter what the outcome is going to be so you're talking about some people being really good at handling stressful situations and through training and planning preparedness or, or just the type of personality they are. But do, do you feel that we, like, even if you're very good at it, do we all have a breaking point? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that the training just moves that breaking point. So, um, you know, being involved uh, in search and rescue, Jordy, you're you're quite aware that some people have the have the crisis pretty easy, right? As soon as something goes a little bit um, sideways, it's, oh my god, this is terrible, and then we call search and rescue. Um, so with more experience and more training, and you start to be a little bit more self sufficient, and then you go, okay, things went sideways, but we knew this could happen and we're kind of capable of handling this um, on our own. So you go from this casual hiker in um, on the weekend who kind of gets, gets lost a little bit and completely loses all hope and needs outside help to, you know, top alpinists who are putting themselves into incredibly precarious situation. But everybody has a breaking point. Um, or I, I believe anyways. Um, and it's funny. I remember watching that, that movie touching the void. And one of the, my first thought was like, well, I probably would have died and given up in the first 15 minutes of that movie. <laughs> it wouldn't have been much of a movie. Um, yeah, how far would, would, uh, one of us have gotten, right? That's the, the kind of the test of that. Yeah. Exactly. So there is a breaking point. Everybody's got one. Um, and it has a lot to do with the, the baggage you bring in, how much experience you have, how much training you have, but you will get to a point where, you know, beyond this line, you just don't know what to do. And a big part of it, I think, is if you have a team, you know, maybe you don't, but if you have a team, which a team is more than one of you, so you and your buddy uh, aid climbing there and, and there's an accident that happens, you're, you work together as a team, right? And, you know, because you, you were still able to talk at least, right? Yeah. Um, through it. And so you, you were giving some, you know, assurances and voice of reason from your perspective as the injured party, and that was teamwork. Yeah, absolutely. And so if, if you if you can have that, utilize it. And I I, I do think that uh, in a crisis, if you just try and be the stalwart leader that, you know, is everybody's looking to and and not uh, not reaching out to the strengths, um, you know, and and shying away, <clears throat> shying away from the weaknesses of the other team members, um, you know, and seeing where you need to patch those gaps, then yeah, it's really it's not going to go anywhere near as well through that crisis. And you take a look at what's going on in Ukraine right now. 
um, not to get you know too political here on this podcast, but like the like to use that as a case study of of Zelensky stepping up uh, to do what needs to be done right now. It's just unbelievable, right? But you know, where's the breaking point? But you can reduce that. You can delay that breaking point or avoid it because of teamwork. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, and that's one <clears throat> one aspect of I think uh, of a crisis. And I was I was discussing that with a friend a couple of days ago, and you know my initial definition was the crisis happens when you just can't get out on your own, like you need help to get out. And then we had a long discussion about it, and he wasn't. He didn't necessarily agree with that, and and we came to some common ground uh, by saying, well, maybe some crises you can get out on your own, but generally help would pretty much always be very good. It's funny about the breaking point. My partner and I um, ended up going down to Moab in Utah from Whistler a bunch of years ago. And on the way down, we stopped at one of her clients' houses in Washington State. And so Jeannie had skied with this this woman a, a, that year. And so we stayed uh, at the house in in, um, in Eastern Washington. And it's very dry, desolate, uh, you know, great wine country. And sort of painting a picture there of of this house with a bunch of land around it. And it's kind of rural and... So this lady has her family come over and we met her son-in-law and he had been a rescue diver for the Coast Guard, the U.S. Coast Guard. And so he's telling us this story of how he had flown out in a helicopter into the Gulf of Mexico in the middle of the night to go rescue some people on a boat that was sinking. So he jumps in the water, they hoist everybody up, but now the helicopter's full, so there's no room for him. So the helicopter flies back to land, leaves him there floating in the ocean by himself, and they're going to come and get him in a couple hours. So he's there, it's pitch black, and something bumps his foot. <laughs> and he's telling this story, and you're thinking, oh my God, right? You can hear the Jaws music you know, in the, in the background of your, of your head. And, and uh, he was okay with that. Like he's telling the story like, yeah, you know, this kind of happened. Well, as it turns out, in this area that we we ended up spending the night, well, the legend has it that there is a Native American Indian chief buried in that area, and he's a ghost. And so there's a ghost of of this guy's a ghost in in the area. He refused to spend the night at her house because he was afraid of the ghost. <laughs> and so here's this guy who is totally okay with something bumping his foot in the middle of the night in the Gulf of Mexico, but he's afraid of ghosts. So everybody has their breaking point and we don't often, we don't always know where, where those are. Um, I was just going to kind of add on something here because you, you got me thinking about this. I find sometimes one of the things that can help us through a crisis is to actually focus on what the problem is. And sometimes the problem isn't always as, as obvious, right? Like we can see the, the immediate problem of, you know, oh my God, uh, I'm in this situation. I, I broke my leg, but the immediate, but the actual problem is I have a broken leg and I have to get out of this situation. And so sometimes I find that focusing on what the actual problem is and can help us by giving us something to focus on. It's like when COVID happened, uh, I noticed that a lot of people, their immediate response was once the world started to shut down was to go to the grocery store and get a whole bunch of groceries because that was actually the one thing that they could they could do to alleviate the stress and and kind of push them forward and show that they're getting some progress on on this. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that being in that in that proactive mindset where you're not just reacting anymore, you say, okay, we have a problem. What are the steps that I can put in place in order to get out of it. And, and you're also very right in saying, what is your objective? Like, what's your problem? And, and what's your objective? Um, in teaching first aid, I, I very often said, you know, first aiders don't fix anything. If somebody's really hurt, 
you're not going to fix them. Your job is to make sure they don't get any worse and then get them somewhere where somebody who's got better skills and better knowledge can fix them. Uh, but ultimately, your goal is not to fix anyone, is to prevent them from getting worse. So having a clear understanding of what it is that you're actually doing uh, sort of reshuffles your priority and, and brings clarity, certainly, to what you're, you have to achieve. So just circling back, because we touched on training a couple of times as being as a, sort of a key thing that we can do to, to help to prepare ourselves to hopefully counter our instincts of, of flight. What does that training or practice look like? Like, how do we structure it so that it ends up being meaningful practice as opposed to just running through the, the, the paces and, and not being able to really give us much of a much benefit when things really go sideways? Hmm. That's a very good question. Um, I think that there is an element of no training can fully prepare you. Uh, and I think I was a prime example of that when I, when I completely lost my all kind of skills in front of that pedestrian uh, that had died. Uh, I had a lot of training at that point. And, you know, one of the things that we say often about training is, is train like you do, like practice like it's real. Um, in first aid courses, very often you'll see people saying, oh, you know, I would take the boot off, but blah, blah, blah. And, and whenever they encounter something that would be unpleasant or difficult to do, they just talk their way through it. And then you miss a really big opportunity of, of actually experiencing how difficult things really are, right? I think that training is, to me, a good wilderness first aid training really brings to light just how difficult things are because you could be delusional in your abilities going, Oh yeah, we can, we can sort this out. But then when you actually try to do it for real, when you try to carry somebody in the backcountry for real, then you realize, Oh, okay. That's, that's a lot harder than I thought. Right. So any, any training that would really outline that, try to make it real. I've, I've, um, I've done it and, and also advise backcountry skiers to say, okay, so here's a good ex exercise. Go out for a day of ski touring with your day pack, what you normally have in your day pack and give it like a good solid effort. Like one of those days where you get to the car and it's pizza and beer and then straight to bed and then finish your day, maybe you know, close to the parking lot or close to a hut. And that's a key point here. And then if you really want to make it interesting, pretend that somebody in your group has a broken leg, sort through your gear to splint that leg. And with whatever left, whatever gear left you have, spend a night out and see how it goes. Um, that's why you want to make sure that if it goes sideways, you can actually get inside where it's warm. Uh, but you know, really put it to the test. And, and I think that by, by doing these things, one thing that we start to appreciate is our vulnerability. Um, and understanding vulnerability is absolutely critical in managing risk. So I'm, I'm straying a little bit here from your original question. Maybe we can bring back the vulnerability a, a little bit later, but training should be realistic and it should outline what is actually difficult and if in training you tend to just talk through the parts that would be difficult you're missing the whole point and there should be some element of stress in your training if you're training for emergency response and, and these types of things to happen in the field because if you don't train with at least some stress then you're not actually prepared for the real stress, which can often be, you know, somebody's screaming at you or they're, they're not screaming at you because they're no longer talking or breathing or whatever, right? That's stressful. Yeah. And absolutely. so, you know, I've had a lot of students say, well, you know, it seems like this is kind of overdone or, you know, it's a little bit too stressful or uh, it's like you, 
we're nowhere near the level of stress for when you actually are going to be responding to these types of events. Yeah, it, it's funny because I had the in first aid courses the <laughs> the two most common things I had was when we were practicing um, in in the classroom setting. Um, and people weren't doing very well, often they would say, oh, you know, um, this is just pretend and I do much better when things are real. Okay, sure. But then they get to the last day of the course and it's the exam and they don't do very well in the exam and they go, well, I don't do very well in the exams because it's too stressful. I said, well, you got to pick one. (laughs) You can't just not do well because it's not stressful enough or do well because it's too stressful. But, um, you know, the number of times I said exactly the same thing you said, Jordy, going, yeah, if you think that exam is stressful, it's nothing compared to what the real world can throw at you. But but training training also shouldn't, it shouldn't be this kind of made up sort of obstacles or things to do that doesn't isn't really all that relevant to the actual infield stuff either right i find we can kind of get very very theoretical or very far away from reality too right you know like you you can't you can't open your notebook yeah. you know on on a on a scenario in in a in a training and it's like well why can't I open my notebook? You're telling me to have some cheat sheets and lists and that sort of thing to reflect on and numbers to call. And, you know, like, you know, what, what if their heart rate is this or their heart rate is that, or, you know, like instead of keeping it all up here, why don't you actually utilize that during the training? So, so having tools available to people that are training that are realistic as well. Absolutely. So the other thing I find just kind of building on what you're saying is, sports so training people for sports whether it's canoeing or biking or or skiing if people can't do it well when it's easy they're absolutely not going to do it well when they're stressed and it gets and it gets hard but i find that when you're coaching people in those situations once they do it when it's easy they they can kind of do it half of half of what you want them to do and they're like okay well it's fine and trying to convince them that you actually need to do this 100% of what I want you to do now. Because when it gets really difficult, you're probably going to go to 30 to 50%. But that 30% or that 50% is going to be the difference of whether you're going to crash and burn or whether you're going to do this okay or, or hopefully well. But yeah, getting people to that level and and to get them to do the repetition so that it becomes second nature so that hopefully when they're pre- they're pressed and they're stressed they they can override their instinct which in mountain sports and and all sports really our instincts are often counter to what we need to do to do well. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that performance anxiety is is certainly a real thing, um, and and you know there there is a surprising number of people who who believe that they will do better under stress, and I, I think that's just delusion. The other lack of reality I find in training is that you get often put into positions that you would not actually be in. And you don't get enough modeling from the more experienced people on the training course of what to actually, what it should actually look like. So it's like, okay, we're doing a scenario here and you're in charge. You say to Billy or Susie and, and Billy and Susie have never been in charge. They're actually just learning these skills. And it would be much better for the instructor or someone else who's quite experienced on the course to actually say, we're going to run through a you know, sort of textbook way to do this, you know, with, with my experience uh, that I have and, you know, and, and case that's where case studies are great too, right. Is mm-hmm. learning from uh, and hopefully some case studies, not that not just show things going poorly, but also things going very well. And then once you've maybe done a couple cycles of that, then move into the, okay, now it's, now it's your turn to, to step up to that higher level of responsibility and, and start making some more decisions and show more leadership. I think that's absolutely right. And and one example that came to mind as you were uh, speaking is the, the power of a demonstration. Uh, so 
you know, typically in the first aid course, I would have my, uh, my oxygen kit and talk about talking about how to administer oxygen. And because I want the students to see the whole thing, I would pull the cylinder out of the bag. And as I'm doing that, I'm saying, so the cylinder just stays in the bag because it protects it and it gets cold and all blah, blah, blah. Uh, but I want you to see the cylinder. So here it goes. Here's the cylinder. Um, and every single time, despite what I said, the students go out and they, they start to practice administering oxygen and all the cylinders come out of the bags because that that's what they saw. That's what the demo was. And I said, no, I said it stays in the bag, but it doesn't matter what you say. If the cylinder came out of the bag, that's how it has to be done. Uh, so yeah, certainly in training, the, like the power of a good demonstration or the power of a bad demonstration is cannot be overstated. Yeah, and, be, and being really strict on the process of this is what you're going to do every single time you do it. And when you see people start to cut corners, because we're all human beings are, for the most part, we're a little bit lazy and we will try to find shorter, shorter ways of doing things. And sometimes that can increase our vulnerability by ignoring things that keep us safe. And so I find that the best, I find the most valuable instruction and training that I've gotten has been from instructors that are both firm on this is what needs to get done and this is the standard, but at the same time, we're going to do exactly what you two just said, which is to create the environment where we give you enough information to be successful when you get a chance to, to test yourself in a scenario or an exercise. Yeah. And I think in the learning process, there is that period where you learn, like intellectually learn what you have to do. And then there is the period where you learn, uh, you know, the, the, the motor skills and how to do things. Uh, but then with experience come like the learning on how to be in those situations. Uh, and that, Unfortunately, there's only so much of that you can replicate with training. Uh, at one point, it does require some exposure. Um, and if you're lucky, you get you know a, a situation like mine where the preceptor just let me crash and burn in a, in a real case where it looked really bad, but realistically, it didn't matter what I did. Like the outcome was going to be the same. Um, that, these are very powerful learning experience, but they, they're really hard to come by. So just wrapping uh, things up here, uh, do you have any other advice for our listeners when it comes to dealing with stressful situations? Well, I think that, you know, through our discussion, one, one theme that came um, up is, is the, the preparation, right? So I think that when you are under a tremendous amount of stress, really what's going to pull you through is how much work you did before. Uh, when you're there, if you haven't done the work to get ready, chances are you're not, unless you're one of these lucky 10% of the people, uh, which I'm not, um, chances are you're not going to do great. And, and there is um, a word of, uh, of advisors, a, a book that is typically used for the, the uh, Avalanche Skills Training Level 2 courses called uh, Staying Alive in Avalanche Train by Bruce Tremper. And there's the, he has his, uh, his 10 commandments. I, I don't know if it was in, actually in his book or in, on a blog that I read, but one was, uh, thou shalt be obsessed with consequences. Um, and I think that this is, you know, if, if I'm looking around at the, at the sort of the recreational population, I think that consequences are dramatically underestimated or just completely ignored. Um, you know, as long as people stay upright and nobody gets hurt, it's all fine. But if I look at the boldness of what people do in the backcountry, with sometimes, you know, very good climbing skills or very good skiing skills, but very little backcountry savvy, first aid and, and self-reliance, like, whew, this is pretty, uh, pretty serious stuff. And so uh, I think that really having a good look at that vulnerability before you set off, uh, you know, uh, the, the vulnerability, just to give like a, a bit of a definition is, is your inability to withstand a hostile environment, right? So 
and that is variable depending on um, on the circumstances and how hostile the environment is, right? So if you're wearing shorts and a t-shirt in a blizzard, you're extremely vulnerable. You add a tent and a sleeping bag, then things have changed dramatically. The environment hasn't changed, but your vulnerability has changed dramatically. Um, so spending a lot of time at looking at the foreseeable. If you're a backcountry skier, what are the foreseeable? Oh, musculoskeletal injuries is way up there. Um, maybe hypothermia is up there. Whiteout navigation is in there. Avalanches, of course, is in there. So these are the foreseeable, right? And realize just how incredibly vulnerable you are if these things happen, how limited you are in your ability to respond to them and how quickly you will need outside help. Um, so, you know, some people have sort of SAR on speed dial. Oh, if something goes sideways, we just call SAR. Um, but the reality is when you start to involve other people in your emergency plan, better make sure that these other people are, are uh, aware of it because sometimes there's things that you may not think of. Like, you know, if an accident happens backcountry skiing and there's no visibility and helicopters don't fly. This one is pretty easy to think, but in your risk management, you go, okay, well, we're on our own today. SAR is not coming to us or not in any like short period of time. Let's reel it in a little bit. And even though I could ski this, Today's probably not the day. Maybe the ski conditions are good and everything is lining up, but our backup, if something doesn't work, is just not there. Uh, and sometimes it's more subtle. Maybe just like right now, we're talking about that uh, off the air here. Uh, you know, beautiful day right now on the coast. Helicopters could fly, no problem. But if something happens to you <laughs> right now on the coast, you might realize that all the helicopters are flying or flying in Alberta and Northeast BC to fight forest fires. Uh, so yeah, you call SAR and you expect to get a, a helicopter. It's just not going to come because it's, it's not there. You know, I, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit. Your initial question was, you know, what can you do to prepare yourself to, to act better? Uh, and I think it's all front loading. I think it's really, you know, get the gear, get uh, get the training, train, 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 like professional guides, like the amount of training that goes into that profession is, is staggering. It's never ending. Uh, and you never see that in the generally in the recreational population for sure. Uh, plan to be self-reliant as much as possible. Have contingencies for all the things that are foreseeable so that when a crisis or when an incident happens, you don't go in crisis mode. You just go from one critical period to another where your task is different. Another one I, I would say is to have a high level of personal fitness for whatever you're doing. And, and then the other one is so that, so that if something happens, you, you have the ability to deal with it, but maybe you don't have something happen because to you, because you have that, physical capability and that's something you can prepare for ahead of time if you're going out and not feeling feeling that you're attempting a big route or a long day out there you know paddling skiing biking whatever it's like well maybe we just today's not the day for me to go do that big thing because um, I'm, I'm probably not prepared and if something happens i may not have the gas in the tank left over uh, to haul my friend out or get myself out of that that it that you know bad environment or bad thing that's that's happening yeah and that you know we're talking about vulnerability and windows of vulnerability that end of the day where you're really tired that's a huge window of vulnerability where or temporarily anyways your uh your defenses are down and we're, and we're talking about delivering adventure here so in terms of delivering adventure, if you are in charge of delivering the adventure and you're the leader on the trip, you need to have that extra bit of ability any time in the day, um, but especially at the end of the day uh, for, yeah, because what you don't want is for people to look at you to say, what do we do now? And you say, I'm not competent or capable to deal with this. Uh, so, you know, from the, from the pre-training side of things, the equipment preparedness side of things, and then also from... Uh, just yeah, having having that uh, physical capability to 
just go with that extra bit if you have to spend the night out or two nights out or you have to haul someone somewhere um you know unfortunately you know if you have to do cpr for a long period of time it's it for those for those listeners that have done cpr it's a lot of effort you know that and yeah. for those that haven't it's more effort than you think it's going to be to, to maintain that quality effective cpr yeah definitely if you're if you're responsible for a group and find yourself exhausted like that should set off some big alarm bells um, you have to you know and that's part of your vulnerability and your group's vulnerability you have your physical fitness you're absolutely right is part of your defense against um, your vulnerability it's the same thing as having proper clothing and shelter and all of that um, if you lose your fitness if you finish all your days of guiding uh, exhausted there's <laughs> you ought to reassess what you're doing so very seriously and then once you've done more of this stuff and you gain some more experience you can do uh, on a guide exam one of one of the longtime guide examiners in the canadian uh mountain guide uh program um in the acmg he uh we got back after doing a, a rock climbing exam and on mount yamnuska in, in alberta here near canmore and he said, okay, you guys, so uh, what didn't you use? What did you not use today, right? Because we hauled that stuff, everything we had in our packs and on, on that we were wearing up and then back down. And so on the tailgate of the truck in the parking lot, he had us throw, throw down what we didn't actually use. And then we had a discussion about, okay, if things went sideways, you might have needed that and that and that. So that's, you know, basic emergency stuff. First aid and communications is probably a good thing to bring all the time. Uh, emergency bivy shelter, all that kind of stuff that's going to help you survive. So let's carve that out and keep that, you know, always with us. But all this other stuff like, you know, extra cams and extra chunks of cord and all these other things. It's like, you know what? You had no use for that today. So maybe make a note of that and don't bring that the next time. Mm-hmm because that slows you down and causes you more effort and you have to climb and defy gravity as you're, as you're out for your day and yeah, make it easier on yourself by not carrying too much stuff. It's a fine line. Yeah. It's interesting. There was a, there was an article that um, created a little bit of a stir about the, the 10 essentials that are presented by, you know, adventure smart and the search and rescue teams and all of that. And the article was to the effect that those ten essentials were were essentially useless, and you don't need them. And and but the the methodology behind it is the the guy interviewed a bunch of hikers as they were coming out of the trailhead, but they were interviewing only people whose hike went perfectly according to plan, and no one got hurt, and no one said, "Well, no, yeah, that's the point. You still need the ten essentials." But these people didn't need that today because you know everything went well it's on those days where things don't go well that you want to make sure you have that okay we're going to finish off there aj thanks so much for joining us if you want to see more of aj we encourage you to check out his youtube channel north shore snowpack we've posted a link in the show notes well jordy what were some of your key takeaways from this episode well, Chris, uh, AJ had tons of good information for us and our listeners. And one thing that stood out was uh, his thoughts on managing performance effectively in a crisis. The best strategy is to keep yourself out of the crisis zone. When we're gripped in a, in a crisis, it becomes very hard to counter our instincts of fight or flight. Our ability to think straight also becomes quite compromised. This means the best strategy to manage a crisis is to avoid losing control to begin with. That said, despite our best intentions, we can still find ourselves in a crisis. So a good strategy for us is to be prepared for it should it happen. And we'll do that through training, uh, professional development, and uh, yeah, just, just trying to be as prepared as possible for whatever eventuality might come at us and cause there to be a crisis. So to prepare for this crisis, you really need to practice. Preparation can pull you through stressful situations. I've had that happen many times to me. Uh, the largest avalanche accident I ever went to was unfortunately uh, the Strathcona Tweedsmere School accident at Rogers Pass, where seven school kids, um, where they, seven school kids died there. And 
that was the biggest avalanche accident I'd been to, but it was also the first real accident that I ever responded to. And, you know, you talk about a crisis situation. It was, it was a very unfortunate and memorable, memorable day, but really our team. And I feel myself in terms of my performance, uh, we did fair, we did pretty well. We had some criticisms, criticisms of what we did there, but we did a pretty good job of responding to that very large stressful incident because we'd done a lot of training ahead of time. So when you practice, make sure it's meaningful. This means it has to have specific attainable objectives that you hold yourself to trying to achieve. Make it realistic and go through all the steps with no shortcuts. Practicing should outline what is difficult and it should have an element of stress. We really want to train the way we're going to fight. Uh, yeah, great points there, Jordy. Um, one of the main reasons that we can end up in a crisis is because of a number of factors that have contributed to make us more vulnerable to the stress that can come with being in a crisis. This is something that AJ highlighted. This means that one of the best ways to boost our performance in a crisis is by making ourselves less vulnerable. Vulnerability is our inability to withstand a hostile environment or consequences. So the steps that we can take to reduce our vulnerability include practicing, as you mentioned, preparing for each eventuality, and having an emergency or contingency plan. Spending a lot of time looking at the foreseeable can help us to recognize when we are going to be more vulnerable. And realizing just how vulnerable we are is another important step. This is another thing that AJ touched on. Also, looking for things that can cause us to lose control to begin with is also important. So trying to address those triggers. And then when a crisis does happen, staying focused on building momentum can be very helpful. So one way to do this is to adopt a proactive mindset where we focus on the things that we can do and we can control. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode. If you haven't already done so, please take a moment to click the follow button in your podcast player so that you don't miss out on future episodes. Your time is important, and we thank you very much for listening. We hope that you found this episode to be valuable. Take care.